You can remain standing and please take your copy of God's Word. Turn to the book of Colossians, the letter that Paul wrote to the Colossians. If you don't have a copy of God's Word with you today, there are copies on the table right by the front door that you came in through. Now would be a good time to grab one. Colossians chapter 1. If you need some reminding or uh, you're new this morning, uh, we just finished recently a summer series through selected psalms. Um, And then coming off of our church retreat last week, we're now entering into a new preaching series uh, in this letter to the Colossian church and to us. So I'll read this morning from Colossians chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Indeed, you can go ahead and have a seat. Let's pray together as we approach God's word. Our Father and gracious God, we thank you for giving us Christ, our prophet, priest, and king. The one who comes to us as a prophet and speaks the word to us despite the weakness of the channel. He is our priest, the one who serves us in heaven now, interceding for this church by name, and who died a perfect death for our sin. And he is the king of all the nations that has ever lived or will ever live. He is the rightful heir of the throne, and he is seated now and awaits his return as the gospel covers the earth from sea to sea. Gracious God, would you be with us now as we learn um, the glory of your grace to us in Christ through the book of Colossians. In Christ's name, amen. Well, it's good to be up here again. Thank you, brothers, for the summer uh, and uh, ministering the word to us through the book of Psalms. Whenever we begin a new series through a book of the Bible, I sometimes chuckle at what we're actually doing. It's 2023, in case you haven't noticed. Why would a group of refined people like yourself Sophisticated we are, gather together every Sunday morning and give our attention to what may see or seem to be just an ancient old book. 
It's 2023. Haven't we moved beyond reading the Bible every Sunday? What's this that we're doing every week? Well, I have two reasons as to why we do what we do. First reason is 2 Timothy 3.16. You know this. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching and reproof and correction and for training in righteousness. So we give ourselves to this book because it is God's created word. It's what it is to us as his people. Uh, Psalm 33 puts the correlation like this. Just as God made the heavens by the breath of his mouth, so God breathed out the scriptures. So we give ourselves to this book because it is God's book. It's how we come to know him savingly. And in knowing him through Christ, It's how he transforms us and shapes us into the Lord Jesus Christ. So reason number one, that's why we give ourselves to this book. That's why we, whatever year it may be, 2023 or 2025, we come every Sunday to give our attention to this wonderful book. But that's true of all of Scripture, right? Why Colossians? Well, I'll just be honest, you have to pick something. So, why not Colossians? Well, reason number two. Colossians, I believe, speaks to the two greatest needs of the contemporary church. And I don't mean that by hyperbole. What are these two greatest needs? It speaks to us about the unequal glory and greatness of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it teaches us or speaks to us about how we should live the Christian life. So the theme of Colossians is the incomparable Lord Jesus Christ and his greatness in the gospel. And how you and I, out of that union with Christ by faith, come to live and be transformed as you walk this Christian life. There were Christians in Colossae at this church. Maybe you can resonate with this. Who were a bit disappointed with the Christian life. They thought the Christian life was a bit uh, disappointing. They wanted the extravagant. They wanted, um, maybe in our vernacular, an extra set of blessing. Is this all the Christian life is, they thought? Christ and Mortifying sin, chapter 3. Making grace alive, chapter 3. There were a group of Christians in Colossae, and perhaps some um, uh, ran away from Christ, perhaps. But there were some there who were thinking, you know, this Christian life is not all that it's cracked up to be. It's rather ordinary. It's rather simple. In fact, you find this refrain time and time again in the letter to the Colossians. Paul will use this term, Uh, maturity, fullness, firmness, um, pressing in. And Paul says, you know, the key to the Christian life is not actually seeking the extravagant or seeking some extra set of blessings. Actually, the glory of the Christian life is plumbing deeper and deeper into the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's rather simple, Paul says. It's rather ordinary. 
But we'll come to all of these themes in due time as we get to the book of Colossians. But today we're going to cover first things. First things, verses 1 to 8. We're going to look at the author, the recipients, and the spread of the gospel. Number one, the author is Paul. He's an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Paul was formerly Saul of Tarsus. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. That means he was um, legalistic, to say the least. He had a standard for himself that was quite light and a different standard for others that was quite heavy. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He was more concerned about the outside of the cup than he was about the inside of the cup. He was Saul of Tarsus. He wasn't always Paul. Perhaps he got that name at his baptism. He was most notably a persecutor of Christians. In Acts 26, reflecting on his old way of life, Paul tells Agrippa, quote, that in raging fury, he imprisoned Christians and put many to death. So Paul did all he could all he could with all his might to get rid of this new way called Christianity. These people who were infecting true religion. And Paul did all he could to get rid of them. In the words of Mark Jones, this is the low of Paul's life as Saul of Tarsus. When Paul receives papers to go to Damascus, he is suddenly thrown to the ground, Acts chapter 9. The resurrected Lord of glory confronts Paul. And that encounter with Christ, as he's stunned with that light, that encounter turns Paul from persecutor to Christian to pastor to missionary or church planter. And so that day, when confronted by the resurrected Christ, that day, in the words of Mark Jones again, becomes the high of Paul's life. He is suddenly changed in an instant by the grace and powerful working of the Almighty in Christ. And so, beloved, you don't have to get very far in the letter to the Colossians to be absolutely amazed at the wonderful, mysterious grace of God in Christ. The first word tells you, oh, this letter is going to be all about the grace of God in Christ. Samuel Rutherford said, there's only one thing that qualifies me for Christ. Did you know that? Rutherford says, my own vileness. It doesn't matter where you've been. It doesn't matter what you've done. And it doesn't matter what you are or have been. There is no sin too great that grace cannot erase. You come to him like a Saul of Tarsus in your wickedness. And his blood is sufficient. So he was, he was Saul, now Paul. And he also says that he's an apostle of uh, Christ Jesus by the will of God. 
An apostle was an, an official office in the early church. It was a messenger who was commissioned with the authority to speak for and represent the one who sent him. Uh, we, we typically run to the apostles when we think about this, but uh, do you know, beloved, that in Hebrews chapter 3, 1, uh, Jesus is called the apostle, the apostle and high priest of our confession. Jesus is preeminently the apostle. He was sent by the Father and spoke with the authority invested in him by the Father. John 13, 20. To reject Jesus, therefore, is to reject the Father who sent him. He's the apostle and high priest of our confession. As he comes to us as a babe, clothed in flesh, the Son is our apostle. But that's not really what Paul is talking about here. He's talking about himself. He's an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. The apostles were commissioned directly by Christ and spoke with his authority. This is why he said, uh, if you, if, when you go out, if people reject you, they're rejecting me. If they receive you, they're receiving me. It's because the apostles were in the place of Christ, you could say. To reject apostolic authority, which is scripture now, is to reject the authority of Christ who sent them. At times here at Redeeming Grace, we recite the Nicene Creed. Thank you, Robert, for doing that. We confess to each other, we believe in one, say it, one holy, Catholic, and apostolic church. Okay, we need to do it again. We need to do, do more Nicene Creed. One holy, Catholic, apostolic church. When we confess that we are an apostolic church, we are confessing that we build our faith upon holy scripture. We're not trying to be archaic. We're not trying to be weird or old or reach into the past for the sake of reaching into the past. No, we are confessing ourselves to build our faith and our life and our body of doctrine upon holy scripture and Christ as that cornerstone. So Paul says, I'm not just an ordinary guy. You know, just some dude that you heard about. I'm an apostle of Christ Jesus. And he says, by the will of God. Everything Paul was, beloved, and everything Paul had traced back to the perfect will of God. Everything he was and everything he had, it's traced back to the perfect will of God. If true for Paul, true for you. You think about your life where you've been, what has happened to your life, the joys, the trials, the pain, the hardship, the difficulty, or the sin. You think about all that has happened in your life, the nights staying up because of the affliction God and his providence has put into your life. And then you think of the sweet miracle of conversion, that time when you set your eyes by faith upon Christ and you said, oh, I want him. 
I want him. Everything you have and everything you are owes itself to the perfect will of God. That's what Paul is saying here. I'm not what I am because I did something. And I don't have this because I merited this. I have this office and I'm Paul now all because of God's will in my life. Don't you love what he says in 1 Corinthians 15.10? He says, By the grace of God, I am what I am. Don't you love that? We are what we are because of the grace and will of God. So first things, you need to understand uh, the author, how it highlights the grace of God and the authority he bears as an apostle. Number two, you need to understand the recipients. Uh, to the saints, verse two, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. Uh, two titles you can see there. Grace to you, he says, and peace from God our Father. Excuse me. Uh, two titles he gives you that describe you as a Christian. Did you see that? Saints and faithful brothers. Faithful brothers and sisters. Let's treat these in order, shall we? To the saints, if you are in Christ, Paul says, you are a saint. <laughs> That's amazing. We typically reserve saint for those in stained glass. But Paul says, no, every Christian is a saint. Each Christian reserved for God. Each Christian dedicated to God. Every single one of you, if you are in Christ by faith, has the status of sainthood. That on the basis of the merit and mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ, you are holy. St. Clair Ferguson tells the story when he was a young boy in Scotland growing up, going to church, and the minister was telling the congregation this very same truth. And as a little boy, Dr. Ferguson left church that day, and he was walking home, and he, he looked up the street this way, and he looked down the street this way. And he says, the truth that I was a saint in Christ. Dr. Ferguson, Dr. Ferguson said, oh, I skipped myself all the way home. I'm a saint. I'm a saint. I'm a saint, he said. And I just skipped all the way home. It's stunning, isn't it? We wrestle night and day with the flesh. We, we wrestle with our sin. We hardly feel like we're victorious ever. And you come to a text like this, and the apostle has the audacity to say, Oh, beloved, beloved if you are in Christ, you are a saint. You're holy to him. Might we have a theology of skipping for joy? That joy should 
well on our hearts because this is what we are as we are in the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, then here's the challenge, he says. Here's the challenge. You're, you're a saint. That's a privilege. But here's the challenge. Your faithful brothers and sisters in Christ at Colossae. Paul notes their faithfulness. Uh, chapter 2, verse 8. Uh, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit. We're going to get here in due time according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Evidently, there were some, I think, being drawn away, as I mentioned earlier, from evangelical doctrine, from truth. And others, however, were remaining faithful to that doctrine. And they needed assurance. And Paul says, you know, sainthood is lived out. It's one thing to be in Christ in glory, positionally. But you need to live in Denver as a faithful brother and sister. Practice your position, in other words. Remain faithful. Don't be drawn away. Don't get sideswiped. But remain faithful to evangelical doctrine and truth by that way of life. Remain faithful to the end. You don't need much imagination, dear friends, to see how relevant these words are to us. We live in an increasingly anti-Christian society Christian values and beliefs are mocked and penalized. It's not unthinkable, I don't think. It's not unthinkable to believe that someday many of us, maybe one of us, I don't know how many, may one day be arrested or fined for holding fast our confession to Christ. Paul says you're a saint, but you need to live out your sainthood. You need to be a faithful brother and sister in Christ. Let me just give you two ways how this is done. There's a lot more. Let me just give you two and we'll move on. First, I want you to live absolutely assured that the Savior will not lose one of his sheep for whom he has died. Not one. Not one. Nothing can hinder Jesus from bringing his blood-bought people safely back to glory. Isn't that amazing? Jesus is a perfect Savior. He will not lose one individual for whom he has died. He will not lose you. You say, oh, my weak, my, but my faith is so weak and my, and my grasp so frail. Well, it's a good thing it doesn't depend on you then, doesn't it? He will not lose you. You come to him, and you have him, or rather, he has you forever. And second, I want you to live humbly confident lives that God is the sovereign king who raises up and who brings down Daniel 4, 32. History, history is not shaped ultimately by the bad deeds of bad men. All right? Not ultimately. Christ is king 
behind the events that before or unfold before our eyes, there lies, for those of you who like C.S. Lewis, a deeper magic, right? Behind the events that unfold before our eyes, there lies a deeper magic. It's called providence. That God wonderfully ordains all that comes to pass and does so sinlessly, purposefully, and wisely. All nations will be brought to rubble. And at the end of the day, there will be one kingdom standing, the kingdom of our God and of his Christ. That's it. So live humble, confident lives as you are a pilgrim on this earth, as you are seeking to be a faithful brother and sister. God is king. Go to bed and sleep. So first things you need to understand the author, and you need to understand its recipients. Three, lastly, you need to understand the spread of the gospel. The spread of the gospel. Verses 3 to 8, let me read it again for you, for you. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world. It is bearing fruit and increasing as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to you, or made known to us, rather, your love in the Spirit. Now, Paul here, there's a story behind what he is describing, and he does not talk about here the chronological order. So let me just give a couple minutes here about what happened. Paul was most likely in Acts 18. He was in Ephesus, and which lies close to Colossae. He's preaching the gospel in Ephesus. Epaphras, perhaps on a business trip, or maybe he did want to hear the Apostle Paul preach, he goes to Ephesus to hear Paul preach, or someone preach. And Epaphras is converted on that trip. Maybe it's the uh, through Paul's preaching the gospel or a Christian he runs into at Ephesus, we don't know. But Epaphras is converted at that time. He then takes the gospel back to Colossae. And what does he do? He begins to preach the gospel. And the gospel begins to spread at Colossae. And a church is formed there at Colossae. Well, fast forward and Paul's in prison as he's writing Colossians, and Epaphras, again, most likely Rome, there's debate, but Epaphras goes to Rome, let's say, while Paul's in prison, and Paul, and upstates, he updates Paul how the church there in Colossae is doing. And Paul writes this letter to the Colossians, and Epaphras takes it back uh, with him to that church. And the observation I took away from verses 3 through 8 is this. Did you notice, I'll put it in a question, did you notice the striking simplicity of the preaching or of the uh, spreading of the gospel? There is preaching, 
Um, verse 5, of this you have heard before in the word of truth. So the gospel was preached. There is hearing, verse 5 as well. The gospel came to them, verse 6. There is understanding, verse 6, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. There is learning, verse 7, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. So preaching, hearing, learning, love for each other. You can see there, right? Your love for all the saints. There's a striking simplicity about the spread of the gospel. Here's where I'm going with this. Through the preached word, care and fellowship of the saints, and as other texts assert throughout the Bible, the administration of the sacraments, by the way, hardly attention-grabbing marketing schemes to spread the gospel. The gospel spreads. Preaching, care and fellowship of the saints, administration of sacraments, the gospel spreads in a foreign land. Think about the imagery Jesus uses to describe the gospel and its advancement in the kingdom. It's like a, it's like a little light set on a stand. You just put it there, turn it on, and it, and it beams forth. You mean I don't have to do anything? Not really. It's got a power of its own. Charles Spurgeon said, I don't need to defend the lion, I just let him out. There's a power in its own. Just turn on the light. He says it's like a tiny little seed you plant in the ground, the gospel is. And all of a sudden, you water it and it's a full-blown tree. And the birds of the air come and, the Gentiles, come and put their nests in there. Right? What? It's like, a, it's like a tiny little seed. It's like a banquet. But God is the host and he's inviting guests. Some RSVP and say, I, I'm too busy. He said, okay, go out to the highways and byways then. Go, go get the filth and the scum in here. <laughs> That's what the gospel's like. S simple things like light, seed, and a banquet. Who would have thought that the gospel spreads through the ordinary means of grace through ordinary people? But it does. Hardly good marketing schemes to grow a church. But it does. And Paul, as you can see here in verse 3, is overcome with joy and thanksgiving at the spread of the gospel. We always thank God, he says, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. All we did was preach the gospel and love each other. And you heard it and believed, and wow, what's happening now? The gospel is going around the world. May joy, may thanksgiving overcome your soul, your heart, at the striking simplicity, at the spread of the gospel. We don't need to do much. We just need to be faithful in what God has given us. Well, let me conclude when the gospel spreads, it imparts, in Mark Jones's words, three 
beautiful sisters. He was great, wasn't he? Mark Jones, what a fantastic retreat. All right, back to Colossians. When the gospel spreads, it imparts the theological virtues, faith, hope, love. Did you see it there? Did you see it? Okay. When we pray for you, verse 4, since we heard of your faith, there it is, in Christ Jesus, and of the love, there's two that you have for all the saints. And verse 5, because of the hope lit up for you in heaven. Those are the three beautiful sisters. Those are the theological virtues, faith, hope, and love. I'm going to cover these in just a minute, and then we will be done. Faith in Christ. What is faith in Christ? Faith in Christ, chapter 86 of the Westminster Catechism, a saving grace whereby we receive and rest upon Christ alone for salvation. Notice the passivity of faith there for justification. It is resting and receiving all that Christ is for you in the gospel. That's saving faith. Now let me break it down just a little bit more. You have to have knowledge. The content of your faith matters. The whatness, the who-ness of your belief. You have to have the facts right. You can't be ignorant of who God is or what God is. So you have knowledge, content, assent, okay? The second piece of saving faith. I think I've lost you. You guys are all furrowed brows at me. Knowledge, second piece of saving faith, assent, conviction of faith. You believe the content of your faith is actually true, so not only are you not ignorant of it, you have knowledge, but you actually believe it's actually true. So um, you believe George Washington is the first president of the United States. Okay, first president. That's true. That's knowledge. But you believe that George Washington is actually the first president of the United States. That's assent. You believe it's actually true, that he is such, if you have your history right. Third piece of saving faith, knowledge, assent. Third piece is trust. Okay? This is the most important part because you can be a devil and have the first two, can you not? You can have right doctrine and believe it's true. That's, that's uh, uh, yeah, demon-like faith, according to James. The third piece is, is trust. It's critical. Trust is a cordial disposition of the soul. It is being awakened to the sweetness and loveliness of Christ. So trust entails a change of value. Demons don't have value of Christ. Trust entails a change of value. Listen to Francis Turretin. This is amazing. Judging the gospel, he's, he's trying to define the, the third element of faith, trust for us. Judging the gospel to not only be true, assent, but good, and therefore most worthy of our love and desire. So it's not only true, but it's good. Also, that the promises of grace, hear this, the promises of grace be for all who believe, including myself, if I believe. That's the, that's the marrow of saving faith, I, th I think. Knowledge, assent, but trust. You mean to tell me, Ryan, that if, if 
that if I come to Christ, he'll save me. He won't just save sinners, but he saves me. he'll save me. Yes, that's the trust aspect of saving faith. That it's not just true for people out there. But I can be confident that if I throw myself entirely upon Christ and all my sin, he will save me. So they had faith in Christ Jesus. And they had a love for each other. The love that you have for all the saints. This is what the gospel produces. It produces a love for each other. Didn't you love the retreat, friends? It's like family up there. You come to a sense of your longing for each other, your love for each other. You have a love for all the saints. Tertullian said, brotherly love is the jewel of the Christian name. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? Love for each other is the jewel of the Christian name. Oh, yes, have right doctrine, but oh, would you love for each other? May we have love for each other. And lastly, you know, you have a hope laid up for heaven. Verse 5, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. The gospel, it produces faith. The gospel produces love. And the gospel produces a hope, a life beyond this world to an inheritance, as Peter says, that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. It's out of reach from your sin. It's out of reach from the devil. These are the three beautiful sisters that the gospel imparts through the simplicity of the ordinary means of grace. May this church, may you give ourselves to this. Let's pray. Our great God, we are so thankful for the first things of Colossians and what it teaches us about ourselves and what it teaches us about you. God, be with us, we pray, as we teach this book. Be with us as we learn. May we be overwhelmed of the grace of God and Christ for us. May the gospel spread in the city of Denver and around the world through the striking simplicity of ordinary people and ordinary means. Amen.